It's a joy to be with you again, share in worship and in word. Would you please bow with me for a word of prayer? God of majesty and God of mercy, Lord, we give honor, glory, and praise to your awesome and holy name. Father, I thank you for another undeserved privilege to share your word, and I pray that through the preaching of your word, you would inform, inspire, impact, and therefore improve the lives of we, your people, to the end that you and you alone would get the glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I want to begin by showing my deep thanks and appreciation for leaders, you the members, this wonderful community of faith. Uh, such a joy to be back with you, to have had the opportunity to share God's word with you over these many months. And I uh, want to get right down to the word, but before I do, I want to praise God. My wife made it to church today, and she has our baby girl with her, Grace Elizabeth. Just want to thank you all for your kind words and prayers and even the gift you all sent as a congregation to us. We are so grateful to you and appreciate you all. Today... Uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And I want to give that disclaimer because I've become increasingly aware of the fact uh, that so many of us shy away from the book of Revelation for so many reasons. And I want to warn you, uh, today there's always a temptation because we are unfamiliar with it to try to preach the whole book in one sermon. I'm not going to do that today. And so you may still leave here today with some questions about Revelation, uh, but I pray you give me a little bit of grace and maybe a few extra minutes to work out what's here in the passage that we'll work through um, this morning. And hopefully, even if you have some questions about the book of Revelation, you'll be a little more clear about this passage itself. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 And I know it may not be you all's custom, but would you indulge me one more time and please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Revelation 19. I want to share a message with you today entitled, Jesus Wins. Revelation 19, begin at verse 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth 
comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with the false prophet who, is, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus wins. You may be seated in the presence of our God. Have you ever heard the term spoiler alert? When discussing or reviewing a film, book, a TV show, etc., a spoiler alert is a warning that an important detail of the plot development is about to be revealed. The book of Revelation should come with a tag in bold letters that says spoiler alert. Because one of its main functions is to disclose God's chosen details of the plot development and ultimate end of human history. To comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, the book of Revelation gives us a spoiler alert not only of our lives, but of all God's purposes and plans. Within the unfolding of the book, by the time we get to the back half of chapter 19, all seven churches have been addressed. All seven seals within the title deed to the universe have been broken. All seven trumpets have been sounded by the assigned angels and all of the seven bowls of wrath have been poured out. Revelation 19, 11 through 21, is perhaps the most climactic scene within the drama of creation and redemption. It describes the beginning of the end. It gives us clues 
to how everything concludes. If you've ever wondered what the world is coming to, if you've watched the news and seen all that's going on and asked, how are things going to turn out? If you've been on YouTube or listening to podcasts or putting your stock in conspiracy theories or people's opinions, this passage begs for your attention. In the midst of a lingering pandemic, a polarized political climate, a divided church on issues of race and righteousness, sexuality and gender identity confusion, and even the possible threat of World War III, maybe you feel weary, worried, or wounded. In this text breathed out by the Spirit and penned by John, God tells us where it's all leading, your life and my life, every unfolding event in the history of time and eternity, every war, every injustice, every sin, every human agenda that stands against God and his design, it's all coming to this. Here's how it all ends. Jesus wins. thought I would encourage us with that message today because this passage unfolds the events of Christ's return to face off with the devil's counterfeit trinity and all the armies of the earth who plan to overthrow God and oppress his people. This is called by many theologians the war or the battle of Armageddon. This final fight for all of time and eternity shows us very clearly that Jesus has no rivals, no equals, and no worthy opponents. Rich with imagery and allusions and metaphors, this text vividly describes the final battle between God and evil in three powerful movements. I want to show them to you at the beginning so you can track with me as we walk through the passage. Each movement, if you still have your Bible open, you'll see it is marked by the phrase, I saw. It's there in verse 11, and then in verse 17, and then again in verse 19. John sees a vision that's designed to declare one single truth. In the end, Jesus wins. The Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory, majesty, and power to judge those who reject him and defeat those who oppose him. Here's the good news. Because Jesus wins in the end, here's the challenge. Rely on him and win with him or reject him and lose to him. Here's the text message for the day. If you don't get anything else, I say, this is God's message for the church and for you as an individual believer from this passage. Here it is. Christ's victory in the end encourages us to endure right now. The question is, what does the text tell us will happen when Jesus wins in the end? First of all, in the end... Christ's victory 
will be certain. This first movement describes a pre-battle victory parade. Can you see it? It's there in verses 11 through 16. John sees heaven open and Christ descending. This scene is a sanctified recreation of what was called in that day the Roman triumphant procession. Rome celebrated its conquest by having extravagant and elaborate victory parades. The general would ride in the front on a white horse. His soldiers and surviving enemies would ride behind him. John sees and describes a pre-battle triumphant procession, not on the horizontal plane of earth, but coming down out of heaven. Jesus is the warrior general, and the armies of heaven are riding behind him. This army, I believe, includes holy angels and redeemed humanity. Spoiler alert, we're in the parade with Jesus. Every detail of this scene proves the certainty of his victory before the battle even begins. Verse 11, John lays the foundation of the identity and activity of Christ by saying he's called faithful and true. Faithful means dependable. It means he can be trusted to do what's right. True means credible. It means that he speaks truth and does what he says he will do. And he says he... He judges and makes war in righteousness. This speaks of his activity. Because he's dependable and credible, nothing he ever does and no decision he ever makes can be called into question. There is no court of appeals high enough to overturn his verdicts. He never makes mistakes. And unlike sinful humanity and unlike Satan and his unholy team, Christ makes war for the right reasons and against the right enemies. These foundational identity and activity descriptions are further developed in verses 12 through 16. They communicate his glory, majesty, and authority, leaving no doubt to his victory. He has eyes like flames of fire. This image points us back to the opening vision of Revelation where John sees Christ in chapter 1. These, flame, these eyes like flames of fire simply mean that he sees all and judges all. He's wearing many diadems. These innumerable royal crowns suggest his sovereign jurisdiction over all other crowns. Everyone else with a crown only has it because he ordained it or allows it. And then he has a name written that no one knows. Out of the Jewish heritage where names equal the full identity of the person, the point is that the evil forces do not grasp who the warrior is that they're preparing to fight. In other words, John says they don't know who they're messing with. 
has a, he has a, he has a robe that is baptized in blood. There's much theological debate over whose blood it is. Either the blood on his robe points back, is his own blood, and it points back to his sacrifice through which his blood was shed for us. Or it's the blood of his enemies before battle, symbolizing the certainty of his victory. And his name is the Word of God, which means he is the revealer of who God is. He has a sharp mouth sword, symbolizing the power of his word and the authority of what he speaks. It says he will rule with a rod of iron. This is an echo of Psalm 2 that suggests discipline for God's flock and protection from God's foes. And then get this image. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. This is an echo of Isaiah 63, suggesting that Christ is the servant of the Lord who carries out his judgment against the rebellious nations. And then the inscription on his robe and the tattoo on his thigh says, King of kings and Lord of lords, which means he has absolute authority over everything and everyone. Not Caesar, not Satan, not the Antichrist, not the president. All authority belongs to him, not them. Every detail communicates his justice, judgment, and jurisdiction. His righteousness, his reign, and his retribution. This triumphal procession from heaven to earth takes place not after the battle, but before it. The point is crystal clear. His victory is certain. Jesus knows how to make an entrance. His second coming will be the catalyst for his victory. Who he is and what he does is proof that he will be victorious. For those who have not trusted Christ yet, the message is that the time is now. Tomorrow is not promised. He could come back at any moment, and when he arrives, it will already be too late. But for those who have trusted Christ, his return should fill our hearts with confidence, peace, and expectation. Here's why. Because his victory is our victory. It's victory by association, not participation. We're on his team, but he doesn't need our help. Maybe I can help you see it this way. Uh, if the Bears win the Super Bowl this year, are you going to say the Bears won? Are you going to say we won? If you're a Bears fan, more than likely you're going to say we won. And you'll be celebrating a victory that is not a victory 
of participation, but a victory of association. The good news of Christ's victory in the end is that his victory is our victory. We win just because we're on the winning team. The Lord's side is the best side. He's never lost a battle, and he never will, because he hasn't even fought this battle yet, and he's already won. In the end, Christ's victory is certain. There's a second part to John's vision. In verses 17 and 18, that says to us, in the end, Christ's victory will be complete. This second movement describes a pre-battle invitation to a victory banquet. John looks again, and he sees an angel standing in the sun. Now, this is a way of saying that from the angle of John's vision, an angel was flying in the midst of the sky, giving the effect of an angelic eclipse. He says, with a loud voice, the angel called to all the birds that fly directly overhead and said, Come gather for the great supper of God. You got to understand the background here, which is that after the Roman triumph parade, there was always a victory feast. Because Christ's victory will be complete, the invitations to the banquet are sent before the battle. The angel invites the birds to dine on the flesh of God's enemies. I need to tell you, brothers and sisters, this horrifying imagery is meant to turn your stomach. This idea of the birds eating the flesh of Christ's enemies is supposed to make you feel like you're watching a horror movie. It's supposed to disgust you so that when you read it, you make sure you don't want to be on the wrong side of the fight. The great supper of God here. In verses 17 and 18, if you read the whole of Revelation 19, is in contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's in, verse four, that's in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 19. The marriage supper is reserved for those who serve God and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The great supper of God, however is reserved for the meat-eating birds of the air. The main course is the flesh of those standing with Satan against God. The vultures are invited to feast without reservation 
on everybody that opposes Christ. Kings and captains and mighty men and horses and riders and all men, both free and slaves, small and great. This marriage banquet at the beginning of the chapter is a symbol of joy. But this victory banquet at the end of the chapter is a symbol of judgment. The first banquet is salvation, but the second banquet is damnation. This is the greatest warning of all, brothers and sisters. Either trust the Lamb now and feast with Him later, or refuse Him today and be eaten by the birds then. These two suppers remind us, brothers and sisters, that there are really only two types of people in the world. Those redeemed by Christ and those who reject Christ. The contrast is meant to encourage the saved and evangelize the lost. Saints should rejoice. And sinners should beware because in the end, Jesus wins. If you don't know him today, the glorious good news is that it's not too late. The question is, which table are you going to sit at and which banquet will you attend? You can receive life and deliverance from Jesus today or death and destruction on that day. All the flesh of his enemies being eaten by the birds means Christ's victory will be complete. No level of socioeconomic, political, or religious status will exempt those who have rejected him from being prey to the vultures. I've started getting weekly updates from several Christian organizations concerning the cruelty of the war in Ukraine. I subscribe to these outlets to help better inform my prayers for those who are suffering. Since December, the total number of casualties, including civilians and soldiers, in the war in Ukraine has risen to upwards of 14,400. When I considered that number, started to research other wars do you know what I found? Do you know what this war has in common with every other war? There are always casualties on both sides. But this text contains the only war, the only battle in human history where there will only be casualties on one side. Christ's victory over evil is so complete, defeating both human and spiritual forces, that there will be no casualties on his side and total loss on the other side. No enemy of God and his kingdom will be left standing. Christ's victory is complete. Lastly, I want you to see in verses 19 through 21 
that not only in the end will Christ's victory be certain and be complete, but in the end, Christ's victory will be conclusive. The final movement describes a post-battle recap. The judgment Christ executes on those who oppose him and oppress his people will bring conclusion to the cosmic struggle between good and evil. John looks a third time and sees the beast, which is a way of referring to the Antichrist himself. He sees the Antichrist, and then he sees the false prophet, who himself is a counterfeit version of the Holy Spirit. And with the beast and the false prophet, he sees all the kings of the earth gathered to fight Jesus and the armies of heaven. It's important to note, brothers and sisters, that this unholy army gathered to fight Jesus before he ever returned. This unholy army drew the line in the sand. They started this fight, but Jesus will finish it. All the images in these verses bring together so many images from the book of Revelation. I'd be preaching to you from now till next week to show them all to you. But suffice it to say that this battle was previewed in chapter 16, verse 16, when all of Satan and his demonic forces were being assembled at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. In contrast to the armies of heaven, the unholy trinity has amassed its own army made up of people from all over the earth who oppose God and Christ. Can you imagine this scene? Christ has come down out of heaven with his armies. And the Antichrist and the counterfeit spirit have assembled the greatest army that the world has ever seen, made up of human and demonic forces. The lines have been drawn. This is Light on one side and darkness on the other. Life versus death. Goodness versus evil. Holiness versus wickedness. This dramatic scene is like a stage set for the grandest and most brutal of all battles. But surprisingly, there is no battle. I know you might have read the text too fast, but the shift from verse 19 to verse 20 is so abrupt that it feels like something's missing. Both sides are lined up for battle, and out of nowhere, the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of fire, and everyone else was eaten by the birds. Just like that, the battle is over. But it's so sudden. It feels like John left something out, or like our Bibles were edited poorly. But there's a message in the shift from describing the armies to describing the outcome. The point of the abruptness is that the battle ends as soon as it begins. There are no other details. 
Christ wins such a conclusive victory that the consequences of the victory are more significant than the battle itself. If you read the text again, there's one verse, verse 19, describing the armies, and then the last two verses simply describe the outcome of a fight that never really happens. I'm, I'm a boxing fan, and uh, every fight, the commentators start off, before every fight, the commentators give what is known as the tale of the tape which details the, the fighter's height and weight and reach and victories and losses and weaknesses, things of that nature. And then after every fight, they give a post-fight recap that shows the scorecards and the punches landed and the knockdowns and the results. Well, when you read Revelation 19, verse 19 shows us the pre-fight tale of the tape. And verses 20 through and 21 show us the post-fight results. But there's no battle in between, no action in the middle. Christ just opens his mouth and his word does the work. All Jesus does is speak. Just as in Genesis when God created everything and called it good through a speech event, here in Revelation, the final defeat of all that is evil will be a speech event. Jesus uses the sword coming from his mouth. His word is the only weapon needed to win. This will be a conclusive victory because Jesus wins without fighting. Brothers and sisters, this battle brings resolution to the cosmic conflict between good and evil. It began in heaven when Satan desired God's position. It broke into time when Satan, when Satan slandered God and deceived humanity, plunging the world into sin and darkness. The turning point in the struggle took place at the cross where Jesus triumphed bringing humanity and God back together again. And now we see in Revelation 19, this conflict reach its ultimate end. We live in a dualistic world where it, where it always seems like it's one person, one group, one political party, one country, one race, one gender, one sexual preference pitted against the other. But the true dualism and conflict rests in the struggle between good and evil, right and wrong, righteousness and wickedness. And when Christ comes, he will solve the problem of the ages. He will right every wrong. He will destroy every evil. He will balance every injustice. He will heal every sickness. And he will wipe away every tear. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you're putting your hope these days. But all my hope is resting in the glorious return of the conquering King, Jesus Christ. I have hope 
for my baby girl's future, not because this world is a pleasant place for her to grow up, not because everything's all right, and not because I've got it all together. I've got hope for her future because in the end, Jesus wins. The Battle Hymn of the Republic in its official form was written by Julia Ward Howe. After visiting a camp of Union soldiers during the Civil War and seeing the ravages and devastation of the fighting, she was inspired to write a song based on Revelation 19 about the war to end all wars, knowing this victorious picture of Jesus Christ. She wrote, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vantage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, 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 hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Christ our King is coming. He's coming in majesty, glory, and authority. He's coming to judge and to reign. May our hearts long for that day. Because in the end, Jesus wins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for this vivid reminder of how every conflict, struggle, battle between good and evil will ultimately end. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that on that day, we will only be victorious by association because we are on the winning side. Having trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. To this we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.